So, how did you find that cliffhanger? That is that call that, the cliffhanger. How, how, how have you spent? Have you found the week? I've, I've not been able to sleep all week. I'll be honest. I do feel sorry for our uh, our, our, our listeners. podcast listeners. <laughs> yeah, I, I have done for sixty episodes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All sorry, right, sorry. Let's no, be serious. Hello, that's fine. Everyone. Hello, everybody. Yes, we're back. Done, didn't you? you didn't say hello to anyone. Yes, you're getting rude. Well, I was trying to like be like if you'd not been able to sleep and you were on edge, and, and it was like, oh God, thank God they're back. I genuinely, everybody, I hope you've not been like that. But I hope, <laughs> in a way, I kind of hope you have, because that just means you've you've sub- you've hit the subscribe button. Thank you. Yes. So. <laughs> Anyway, so where were we? So six, five, 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 yeah, six, five, four. (laughs) That's wishful thinking. People are thinking, God, how many more of their SEO? Um, yeah, so number number five, five offensive AI. And you don't mean the Microsoft. AI Twitter account, do you? No, nor do I mean the annoying paperclip that we used to have in Microsoft as well. well this is no, Microsoft so, so, right. I appreciate, I think we left the conversation, well, the, the last but one prediction that we made was about how fluffy kittens and rabbits and unicorns and augmented AI Just and how this was so lovely. Yes. Um, now we're going to tell you how AI might not be so lovely, though. Mm. And actually how AI is being used by nefarious actors, be they whoever they may be. Um, don't get us into trouble. Or equally importantly, don't make us targets. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> yes. you know, we need, to be, we need to be mindful here that none of this is proven. This is all very sceptic- hypothetical. Skepti- hypothetical and scepticism. But... There's there's evidence in the wild, there's evidence in um, researchers' documentation to say that this is occurring. So essentially, offensive AI is attacking organizations, cyber attacks, but based and in, based on using sort of self-learning, self-teaching viruses. So essentially, when they um, enter an environment, they don't have to report back to a command and control center for the next actions. They can adapt. They can essentially change the way that they traverse through a network. They can change the way that they um, attack and and they and they penetrate and they fall and they and essentially start to learn. And so you know we we've spoken before. We spoke at um, Infosec back mm-hmm. last oh, year yeah. um, about you know using AI to detect patterns on networks and, and be able to essentially hide, um, you know, find hidden patterns in the traffic that are nefarious actors and viruses and malware. And I don't think it is beyond the wit of man. Uh, and I think it's, it's a logical step to say, well, we're using the technology in the hand of the good or the white. Um, like you said, there are signs, and it's quite conceivably that that same technology could be used yeah. on the offensive. And that's exactly it. And you know, the technology can can start to. So the AI technology that's being used to learn your keystrokes or how you use a laptop, the AI used will to sit. Attack you, not just well, protect you. exactly. The AI will sit there, learn exactly the same, and transmit back its nefarious information or exfiltrate data 
from your laptop straight through these brand new corporate firewalls and these brand new super clever pieces of technology, basically posing almost identically like you in every way, even the ways that you don't even realize, like the way that you send and receive data by pressing send and receive on your email or the way that you surf the web. It will learn these things. Instead of sending back in a very set manner, which is quite easily detectable by some of the latest and greatest technologies, yep. it will it will send it will basically hide itself incredibly well. So so that's a set that's that's offensive AI. And it's yeah. it's a So you're not talking let's say it's just let's be, just be clear. Well, it's not here. Skynet, talk, right? Yeah, it's not Skynet. No, it, no, 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 it's no. a very specific it's a very, use of yeah, yeah. the technology in a very specific, probably you know, quite targeted absolutely manner. absolutely it's very much that but it's sort of um it's been likened to superbugs in you know antibiotics like and medical virus. worlds yes. where you fundamentally how do we treat this problem if this thing you know how do do we we can't turn up the accuracy on the ai anymore because the false positives will start to go through the roof you know people who are just trying to get on with their day jobs will be disrupted yep and organizations will basically disenfranchise their staff. And when you do that, you really, you're absolutely done for. So it's a really difficult problem to tackle. And it's something that we're going to have to look into in 2018 because yeah. just like, um, you know, the, the crypto locking type viruses and ransomware became so prevalent in 2017, this could well be the year that we start to see these incredibly clever and incredibly sort of nefarious technologies get into the wild and start to cause havoc in major organizations. So let's not get scared. Let's get aware and let's not yeah. hide from the potential threat. Exactly. And as, as always, security is not about scaring people. Yeah. So moving on. Moving, moving on. on. Moving on. We're going to get all sciencey now. Proper, proper sciencey. Mm-hmm. Aren't we? Well, so I'm, once I'm, again, I'm just seeing you up here. I, I right. Know what's so this coming. is this, this is could be a car crash. This this is one that I really really like, and <laughs> yeah, I really yeah, like yeah. it because I feel there's a genuine need for it now. So, quantum computing. Once again, this is one. This is something that's been theorised for a long time. Never um, ever did I imagine that I would be sat on a sofa. Recording the podcast, first and foremost. Secondly, never did I think I would be verged <laughs> into talking about quantum physics on that podcast. So, so right. So, so let's, let's take a step back. Let's take a step back. Why? So what's the problem definition that makes quantum computing and 2018 a reality? And I'd also like you to explain what quantum computing is as well. I will do. Just okay. as soon. Right. So, so what's the problem? First so the problem is, right, so we've been tracking really, really well with Moore's Law. We have. Okay. The way that we've been tracking with Moore's Law, and for those of you who don't know, Moore's Law essentially says that the number of, number of transistors, the transistors are the little bits inside of, little bits of technology inside of com computers, inside of the chips inside of computers yep. that essentially make them work. Yep. And the way we make computers okay. faster is we squeeze more of these transistors into a single yep. chip, the more transistors we get in, the faster these things yep. work. More powerful it, the chip. Exactly. It's pretty fundamental. The problem, the way that we've achieved this is through miniaturization. We've, we've basically developed smaller and smaller and smaller manufacturing techniques to the point now where Intel's latest chip labs have to compensate for the wobble of 
the earth. So they built the entire chip lab essentially on a massive wobble table. Despite, <laughs> it's that Sorry. mental. Is that that? But that's how small we're manufacturing things. Okay, that's 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 the that's the that's the, that's the sort of margin for error that we can't compensate for. But there's a problem with this, isn't there? Well, there is because the problem that we have is when we get so small as we are now, we're too, the, 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 the componentry is too small. Yes, a lot smaller than that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> than that. Um, the componentry is too small to be able to actually act as a gate anymore, act mm -hmm. as a transistor. The whole purpose of a transistor is it's on or off. It's essentially yep. a very, very, very tiny switch. Uh, but the problem is when you get t so small, the electron, the electricity that we're mm -hmm. essentially passing through or stopping doesn't work anymore. And it essentially does something called quantum tunnels through that transistor. So it essentially just goes through it like it's not there. Because mm. the transistor is so small, it has the ability to just pass straight through yeah. it. So we are now at a place where we cannot get any smaller fundamentally. The laws of physics didn't, will stop us making anything that's any smaller than we are today. Which means that we will be no longer able to make things perform... Any faster. Any faster using <coughs> current technology. Yeah, and, and lots of people will say, well, mm. you know, you can go to 3D chips and you can do this and you can do that and do the other. You can make the die bigger. But the problem then is you end up spacing. Mm. But no, 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 there's some more physics limitations. Go on. Because at the moment, there's about a kilometer of wire inside of that single die. Yeah. Right? Because it's all over the tracks and all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. right? Because it's so mm -hmm. thin. The problem is you start to make it any bigger. So... At the moment, the, the chip is maybe like that big. If you make it that big, the distances that the electrical signals have to travel around the trip actually negate any performance increases you get. So it's immediately, we, yeah, so we are... travelling faster. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So we're at, we're at the sort of the sweet spot at the moment. So, so there's going to be more. there's going to be more ways of fixing this. We can start to bond multiple processes together. You know, we've gone to multi-core chips, so we're yeah. at 10 core, da, 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 and yeah. that will continue. That will give us minor speed bumps. But what we need is we need to start to look at a fundamentally different technology. Now, the only major fundamentally different technology yes. outside of RISC and CISC-based chips, which wobble is what we tables, have today, yeah, yeah and wobble <laughs> tables, is, um, is quantum computing. Now, essentially... I'm not going to try and explain quantum computing on this oh, podcast. On. I will do my best, but my God, it is just ridiculous. So essentially, quantum computing is the... So in, in normal computing, we have one and zero. Okay? One and zero means we could be on or off. In quantum computing, we can be one, zero, or any of the states in between one and zero. Or we can be all of those states at the same time. We essentially have what we call the qubit. The qubit has multiple yes. states. There are some limitations on this, <laughs> like the fact that as soon as that we well, as soon no. as we start to observe, as soon as we observe a qubit, it immediately loses that multi-state position or superstate and turns into one or zero. Yes. But there's but essentially what we can do is whilst we're not observing it and it's doing the computation, we can leverage quantum the the power of this very odd behavior yeah. um, to essentially compute incredibly complex things um, all in one go. Now, the sort of computing problems that quantum computing fixes is things like um, scheduling and routing and, um, and sort of complex 
tasks that require millions and millions and millions of variables. For example, if I want to travel from here to Australia, yes. what's the best route? Now, normal computers can get us almost all the way there, but do they take into account every single variance, every single road in between here and Australia, every single possible method of sea travel, the carbon impact of different things? You know, if we were to genuinely compute every single possible iteration of how I get from here to Australia, the quickest, most carbon neutral, cheapest, you know, way, and by the way, I also want to visit a thousand different places on the way, and I want every single route, every single possible route calculated. Yeah. A normal computer would, would just tell you to go and spin on it. Or it would do or it would do a very good guess. With quantum computing, you could calculate every single one of those possibilities instantaneously. And then come out with the answer which was the most accurate route to get from A to B. And it's these sorts of scheduling, routing, these sorts of incredibly complex computations where mm -hmm. quantum computing really comes into its own and, and is phenomenally more powerful than normal regular computing. Now, I don't see quantum computers being the, you know, us having them on our laptops or desktops. There are limitations. They need to be super cool. They need to be super conducted. They are unbelievably cool pieces of kit. But... Not to say they won't. Not to say they won't, but... As we sit here today, we are now starting to see yep. the very beginnings <coughs> of access yes, being absolutely. given to so this, these yeah, types exactly. of systems. So this is where I see quantum computing going. I don't see people owning quantum computers per se, unless you are Google, who bought one recently, yep. unless you are Lawrence Livermore you know, labs over in, or I butcher that name, but basically the, you know, nuclear research facilities yeah. over in America. Um, those sorts of organizations own quantum computers. IBM own a quantum computer. Microsoft yeah. own a quantum computer. In fact, IBM have brought out Q-Series, which is an entire range of commercially available quantum computers. Where do I see this being used? Well, IBM have found a really good use case where they've actually released quantum computing as a service. So yeah. you can actually schedule quantum computing jobs onto their... Um, publicly available quantum computer through Bluemix. I, uh, Microsoft have written an entire programming language for quantum computing called Q-Sharp. And the way I see it being used is as an offload engine, very much like we leverage GPUs today to do yeah. computational, you know, deeply computational stuff for machine learning and AI. You know, is it... Is it fair to say it'll be an extension of HPC, an extension yeah, of Yeah, exactly. So, so what you'll have, so if you look at the latest um, servers that have got these MV links, which are super fast buses from the general GPU purpose, general purpose computing systems to the graphical processing units. Yeah, you know, we've seen this with, with every type of, so we've seen encryption offload engines, mm -hmm. network offload engines, graphics offload engines and GPUs. There is every possibility that we may start to, to get these speed-ups, get more finite and say, we have a scheduling offload engine. We have a, you know, a, one of the, basically all the good things about quantum computing, we will basically offload. So essentially all your the CPU that we've had doing everything to this point literally becomes the decider of where the work gets sent to do, the, do it the quickest. Mm. Is it machine learning type tasks? Right, send that to the GPUs. I, I think Is it a scheduling type yeah. task? Send it over to the quantum computer. Yeah, I, I think it's probably <coughs> fair to say we'll see, we'll see more. 
research organisations and, and academia start to leverage these services See, first? <clears throat> and, re and really, I hope, and my fingers crossed, for all those vendors that you've mentioned, hope that they'll they'll really start to see the benefit and and almost prove the, the potential use cases yeah. for it to be taken up, taken up in yeah. and the private sector. So here's the reason why I bring it up is because I made a prediction back in 2014 that we would not see AI... Rich. <laughs> <laughs> that we would not say see AI... We might have been only 2015, never mind. Basically, the AI was going to be the preserve of machine learning in, in the general world. It was going to be the preserve of universities and massive companies who could afford the complexity of the data scientists and everything like that. Mm. It has massively accelerated because it has a real genuine purpose in the world. Yeah. It fixes a lot of problems and it, and it gets around a lot of the limitations that we had in computation and mm. our ability mm. to understand. Quantum computing could do the same thing and it could and the reality is all you need for one of these technologies to rock it off in the same way ai and machine learning have is a commercial application that is so yeah. profitable that it do, it makes absolute sense to do it so yeah there you go quantum computing mm -hmm. watch this space so hey we said we said we were going to get all science here. You, you didn't disappoint so number seven this is where you get a little bit daft punk on us isn't it <clears throat> yes. So this one, I think we've had a few times, but I don't know if I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm sort of going for or against here. Um, so harder, better, faster, automate. So it's all about automation, automation integration. Because I've banged on about this for a few years running now, and I still believe that we are so far off of what is really possible with integration of multiple services and automation of multiple services. It's not been helped by certain factors. Certain factors being um, integration is hard, as they say. <laughs> right? I say that about a lot of things. Including cloud, but, included security, included IoT. But the reality is, yeah. it's really hard. And it's, it's not yeah, just hard because it's hard. It's hard because if you do it, so say you're integrating two or three diverse, you know, disintermediated systems, mm -hmm. right? For the for purposes of this, we're integrating an on-premise database yeah. with um, Office 365 and Salesforce.com, right? Yep. You've immediately got three interfaces yep. that you've got to intermediate between, yep. right? So first issue, they are almost definitely all completely different interfaces. Not just different yeah. in that they need different data and they have different ways of doing things, but they'll be different in one might be RESTful, one might be SOAP, one might, and for those of you who don't know, it doesn't matter that you don't know what these terms mean. The fundamental thing is, he's not making them up. That's everything, everything is different. Yeah. And it's fine, you can get around this, okay? But it's hard, okay? Yeah, it, takes it, takes, it takes time, time and, and, and it's skill, very... And, and the reality yeah. is there are a lot of pre-baked integrations that you can just pick up, but 99% of them are going to need a level of you going in and customizing it for your specific business operational purposes. So you're trying to say that there's still 
a lot of manual. Oh, work. I haven't got to the worst bit yet. <laughs> Come on. So the worst bit is, and, and I and I say this as someone who has lived this pain. Okay, so we've uh, spoken about Harpy's. So so we we've spoken about Harpy's London, right? Yeah, we have. Yeah. Now Harpy's London was a massive integration project. As, well, as long as it was being a big data project, we integrated into umpteen different external data sources, pulled them all in, did all our analytics. Brilliant. You purposefully caused yourself a lot of pain in that. I did, I did, but that was the purpose of it, right? Now, the crux of, of, the, of, the, of the backbone of this point <laughs> is that when you do this, you are entirely reliant upon external resources and external people maintaining those interfaces and maintaining the format that they've written those interfaces in and not saying, oh, actually, do you know what? If we ask for slightly different data, or we change the URL somehow, or we change something else somehow, we can make our service much better. So let's just do that. That's a really good idea. Because the problem I then have, as I found with Halpies London when I came back to it, I found some issues, had some, had some error alerts spring up, and then realized that one of our major data providers had completely um, depreciated their entire API, and someone else had ch entirely changed their spec. So immediately, I'm sitting there going, Oh, and then someone else had changed an SSL certificate. So three out of like seven of the data feeds I use were completely banjaxed. And I had to literally almost start from, from scratch with these providers. So imagine this, dear listeners. It's like you leave your house <coughs> of a morning, or the doors, the windows, the gardens, the drives, the gates. Everything's exactly where you expect it to be. And when you come home, everything's not, everything's not where you expect it to be. The drive is no longer a drive, it's a pond. Yep. Your front door is on the first floor around the back of the house. And instead of having six windows, you probably had Exactly. 28. So you've then got to go and build a path to your front door on the first floor yeah. of the house, okay? Like that that is, really that is bob on. And that is a really good way of putting it because that's what it's like. You've then got to almost start from scratch. And whilst you're starting from scratch, there is no recourse. And now... Often, you know, people will give you, like, for example, Salesforce, I very much doubt they'll depreciate an API overnight. Mm -hmm. But they may well turn around and say every six months, actually, we're going to roll or depreciate this particular function that you relied upon, or we're going to upgrade it to this new API specification, which means you've got to come in and change stuff. And that's a pain in the bottoms. Now, when we were leveraging internal services, we wouldn't upgrade. And if you didn't upgrade your, your system, your API never changed. And actually, more often than not, it didn't change that much anyway, because you know, application life cycles and, and sort of software life cycles inside of organizations on-prem was much slower. In the cloud, it's the speed of light and people mm -hmm. are constantly evolu you know, evolving the functionality yep. and exposing it as APIs. So what's so, the Nirvana? So the point of this trend the, the, is the Nirvana. The Nirvana, the, yeah. The Nirvana. glimpsed that you think, oh, wouldn't that have been really yeah, helpful? Yeah, so... so so okay, this is this is not really a trend, a concept, or a technology. This is a plea. It's a wish, isn't it? It's yes. a plea. <laughs> all right, we'll get there. It, it's first and foremost there is a huge opportunity here for resellers, deliver managed integration services, because if you can turn around and say to an organisation, because I'm not going to lie, the the business benefits far outweigh the risk, far outweigh the effort mm -hmm. when you integrate multiple cloud services together yeah, yeah. to create something that is so far in advance of the sum of its parts. You can integrate business logic into all your integrations. You can do some 
it's magic. And there's, look, there, there are guys out guys, there are guys and girls out there doing this today. Absolutely, you and I know a few of these and have been. Yep. we've been lucky enough to interview them in different exactly form, formats. But, but I tell you what, they're few and far between. They are so. It's it's still one of the most underserviced areas of our entire channel. Yes, cloud managed integrations. Just I want to see a couple of partners, a couple more partners we have today. Take this up. There is room for all of you. Do it. It's super profitable. Mm. It's super valuable to the customer, and yeah. they will love you forever for doing it. Well, so, it's it's one of those things. Isn't it? I mean, I, I speak to some businesses about things like you know, well, oh, you know, we're going to smart enable IoT things. So we're going to put device, and we're going to have a, a, a dashboard. So we're going to make a building smart with things like bins and heating. We'll have a nice dashboard to show <coughs> when our bins are full, mm. and sort of you know when when bulbs are off. But okay, so. Uh, that's great, but how are you going to in, how are you going to integrate that yeah. into the building and the facilities management systems? And you get a blank look. Well, why why would I do that? Well, are you going to schedule a job to go yeah, into that exactly. bin or place that pump or do that? It's like and this is the thing on a, on, a, on a on a whiteboard when you're going this could do that could do this could do that. It's easy. It's to draw a line. The, yeah, the devil's <laughs> yeah. All, the devil as always is in the detail. In the detail yeah. so, so anyway, anyway, that's anyway, that. That was number seven. We're yeah. rocking number eight. Number eight. I'm going to have to check now. But I'm sure you know that it's manufacturing the future. Yes. So this is all about um, basically the the trend that we're seeing. A trend, yeah, trend stroke slash actually quite an accelerated trend that's probably pretty well established now, which is this new wave of, of manufacturing and technical sort of using not just IoT or robotics, but using some super advanced technologies inside of um, inside of manufacturing and the yeah. computational sort of overhead that has and and you know the the opportunity to really drive change into manufacturing this has sort of been driven by a, a, an article I read middle of last year which was possibly a little bit hopeful but but got me thinking Good. about so manufacturing, you know, we used to be a, a capital, you, you know, the UK and Europe used to be a massive hub for manufacturing all sorts of products. Mm. The reality is we're not anymore, right? It's China, it's Korea, it's um, all those sorts of places. They are the hubs of manufacturing because labor's cheap, okay? Yes. But what happens if actually labor doesn't become the deciding factor in what makes manufacturing cheap and actually what makes manufacturing cheap is advanced factories robotics cyber digital systems ai so then this actually this robotics and that sort of stuff yeah. doing it 3d printing all that sort of stuff automation that becomes the workforce and actually then you don't need people you need we don't need people sitting there all day long putting heads on dolls it's not about cheap manpower it's, it's about, about expensive capabilities yes. to be able to support the systems inside the factories and at that point could you once again this was the sort of the point of the article and i don't agree or disagree with this article it's just okay. a point i'm raising would you could you see a recoil in manufacturing from china et al back to european and possibly north american places where actually the skill sets for advanced AI, cyber, you know, cyber digital systems, all those sorts of things exist and, and are abundant. So... Possibly. I, I don't know. I don't right. know. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hypothesize. Go for it. Well, no, I'm not going to hypothesize. I'm going to prove your theory, right? I like it. Now, this isn't a shameless plug because this is, uh, uh, this is an Arrow Bandlet podcast, uh, and so this is nothing for, for me to, um, to gain from personally, but I like watches is all I'm going to say here. So we kidded ourselves in the Western world that, yes, for, for commodity items, for, for cheap manufacture of cheap consumable, almost disposable mm. goods, yes, you know, that is, that is the place now for, for manufacture is manufacturing center of the world is in China and, yep. and Southeast Asia. You can argue that you've seen elements of that pick up in places like Vietnam and Philippines yep. and yeah, yeah, Thailand, absolutely. et cetera, et cetera, right? But in the Western world, what we will do is we will, we will always have a place because we will be able to, to you know, manufacture highly complex, highly expensive yeah, products that aren't disposable, that are... Yeah, that that require very specialist skills, mm. and, and and to be fair, yeah, what <coughs> you look at something like a motorcycle in the automotive industry, you know, you might be able to take yourself up up the value chain so far, and, and the value of the good, but ultimately, you know, what other markets are taking steps towards always catching up, catching yep. up, catching up, catching up, right? So the point. Back to watches, right? I think your smart factory. I don't think we are looking into a, a crystal ball with this because I actually see it happening. Yeah. It is possible now to buy for less than two hundred pounds <coughs> an automatic Swiss-designed and Swiss-made watch. So an automatic watch is a self-winding mechanical watch. Okay. It has 51 moving parts in it, which is a world record to design and be able to manufacture a automatic self-winding watch that only has 51 parts in it. Swatch make this product, and they make it not in China, not in the Philippines. They make it in a fully automated factory in Switzerland. Mm. An automated factory where the manufacturer these 51 parts in a watch is done by a robot. Wow. The product is designed and manufactured in arguably <coughs> one of the most, yeah, let's be fair, one of the most difficult places to get to in the world because it's mountainous. So it's got to come through a very expensive tunnel or fly in. It's a small country, so, yeah, the available workforce is small. Yep. Okay, it's highly skilled because let's fair. Let's be fair. You think Toblerones, or you think watches when you think of Switzerland, <laughs> or you think banks and clocks okay? and clock. What clocks? It's a watch. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah <laughs> I've just proved Good. your point. I've just proved point. your point. But see, this is the point. This is the point. It's if you were going to build a product from scratch today. Admittedly, if it's going to be a pr product that is in that environment in that market that is renowned for that product but the high end mm. high value are you going to are you going to build your your cheap cheaper version of that product in that home market where the skills to no. make it are expensive because these are professional highly trained highly qualified people where arguably workspace is you know, pound per square foot, yep. it's going to be at premium. Everything's <clears throat> at a premium. But yet you can produce something that is designed and associated with that premium market. Yeah, yeah. 
at a price that is just absolutely incomparable. Yeah. Point proved. Yeah. And they rely on technology to do it. There you go. Have a spare wrist. That's all I'm saying. Right. Well, that's that's that point <laughs> done. Shameless plug. That's that one done. Yeah. Are we so done? no, no not done. last but by no means least. Oh. So um, last one is uh, it's, it's really one, really one for you. It's uh, another one at my street. More more importantly, sorry, I, I, zero. I went off on a tangent. Let's bring more, it back. More importantly, I really liked the start to this particular prediction where I I went through and so this one's all about low uh, the next generation of wireless. You know, very it will be very highly commoditized wireless technology. So. I went through and had lots of fun looking up every type of an. <laughs> an? What do I mean by an? I mean an, area network. Annabelle, an with an E, an without an E, no. Nope. Different an. I mean an as in area network. So Ooh. lan, wan, man, pan, can, wulan. Is there a know, dam? Pardon? Know. Is there a dam? Dam. No, no. not I could find. Um, there's lots. Sorry. Um wireless LAN, metropolitan LAN, Ooh, local pan, area, can. PAN. Yeah, uh, personal area SDW network. Um. Yeah, software-defined WAN. So, um. long and short, SAN, storage area network. So, Sorry, there, there's lots of them, right? Yeah, so, right, adding right. adding one more felt painful, but it's well, important. I had you just had to double-check that you didn't have this in the previous one, because we've had so many ANs. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, low-power... Area network, LP one oh, wide area network. Sorry, low power oh, wide, wide area, area network. network yes. So, IoT, right? Yeah. Good old IoT. Now the problem with IoT is that the fundamental design specifications of an IoT device is low power, low power, low power, everything else, right? Because at the end of the day, if you're if you're designing a properly like distributed or a properly I'm designing a dropped. widget. If you're designing a widget that you want to drop into a field or drop into an industrial solution, unless it's powered, you need to think power because you don't want to have to go and climb up a ladder or go into a metropolitan situation or a city situation and constantly change the batteries. You might have a solar cell to trickle feed stuff up, but the reality is we live in England. Solar cells are not not for the size of one that you're going to put on an IoT device. Look, let's, let, let's be like fair. A of an A4 that, paper. that device might be going inside, so you yep. might not be able to access anything other than ambient light. Yep. Very, very, very rare that I think you'd be in a position where you know you might be able to plug it into some some constant power source. Like, exactly. Like a, and actually, as soon like as you start to say, I need to plug it into constant power sources, you very you limit you immediately limit the locations you can actually yeah. put the IoT device. And actually, that might fundamentally damage its purpose in the first place. So the point here is you're going to have a device, a sensor pack, widget, that has a shelf life. And yeah. the thing is, the thing that's going to drive that shelf life is not its robustness, not the spec of the software that's in it, but the size and the lifespan of the battery that yep. you can put in. So you can't always put a car battery in. Yeah, exactly. So everything that's going to make that device, that widget useful, has arguably got a pecking order in how... How much power it can take. Much power yeah. it draws from that battery, which so is a reservoir <clears throat> that is... Constantly decreasing. 
and one of the things that's going to be near the top to make is, that useful is connectivity. Is the connectivity piece. So to this end, um, we saw the emergence and the sort of mainstream um of um, low-power wide area networks last year. Yeah. They became prolific. We had LoRa, we had Sigfox, we had yep. MBIoT, we had Z-Wave, we had... Um, there's absolutely loads of them. I'm forgetting half of them. You could probably pull out a few more of the bag. Valium, Zebra, the list goes on. Th uh, Thread. Thread, yes. Um, LoRaWAN. I mean, there's loads. And th some of them are fundamental transmission protocols. Some of them are the technologies set over yeah. the top to make them more intelligent. But the net net is, it's a massive space. And it's there growing super there fast. Are, there is an, there's a, it's an industry in its own right. Yeah. And actually, it's the reason it's in there is because... The coverage of things like, so the two main, the two dominant ones, I think, at the moment, are probably LoRa and Sigfox. It seems to be going that way. So LoRa is more of a, a privately owned, low-power, wide-area network. So essentially, an organization can spin up a LoRa network to support their own devices, and no one else, and they can encrypt it, and no one else can get on it. Yeah. So they can have a level of security from device yeah. through back to base station. Sigfox, however, is a very different approach. It's more of a... Um, like carrier grade. Yeah. It's a carrier grade. It's a full network. Yeah, really. they're trying to basically. And the reason I bring this in is because actually, in the major cities, Sigfox has now reached a point in which it's actually gained a significant um, distribution. It covers sixty percent of the UK at the moment. It covers all major cities. Uh, I think it's is it sixty percent of the country is physically covered, but ninety eight percent of the population. Yeah. Which and the plan, yeah. So, so what does that mean? Well, that essentially gives IoT developers an opportunity to have to very quickly, easily display, uh, you know, put these devices where they need to put them, be able to connect back, but be able to do it without having to worry about putting cellular technology and all this sort of stuff. So, it essentially opens up an opportunity for innovation mm -hmm. and wide scale innovation and wide scale adoption of these of these devices into much more sort of and normal I think, environments. I think one of the things that you'll see as well is, you know, you know, if you're on a particular network provider, you'll, you know, you, you can walk around a city or a shopping centre or and, and maybe get free Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. uh, but that might drop in and drop out. You might have to sign in, sign out. Um, one of the things that Laura, Laura will, I think, we'll all start to see the benefit is you'll start to see maybe towns and cities adopt uh, a free Wi-Fi service. So that, you know, why would you do this? Well, you know, you want to drive, drive people into the hearts of cities. You want people yeah. to be connected through, say, events, or like festivals, things like that. So they might be temporary for a while. But um, I think, you know, outside of the Industry 4.0 element of, of, of why Laura makes sense and why, you know, we'll see it creep, yeah, creep up in relevancies, we'll also see it impact us. Mm. And the fact is that you know there's there's organisations out there today that are working to to put up you know citywide labs or, or even put up you know propositions to really make make access and connectivity almost a given yeah. regardless of where you are. So I, I'm all for that one. I, yeah. I mean, I think there was this. Is there going to be a battle between some of the telco providers and maybe some, some of, of these more open, and yeah. some of these I mean, it is worth mentioning. I don't think it's that. It is worth mentioning that 
next year there could be a battle simply because we've got Vodafone bringing MBIOT, so narrowband yes. IoT on board. The limitation with Sigfox and LoRa is that they are not deemed as carrier-grade solutions simply because they've flown under the radar of actually ever needing to buy Spectrum. Yes. So they can only carry a very small quantity of data. So I think Sigfox is 120 packets a day. If you buy the high subscription, and each packet you can send up is about 16 kilobits. So you're talking. You can. So yeah, you can. Yeah, we, yeah, we, <laughs> we met them. Um, but the reality is, if you're a, if you're a piece of IoT device, how much data you don't need to send anymore on that. So but it's thing. not a general purpose technology. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but this is the thing. It's. Yeah, just as we said all the way through our podcast, especially on the trends one, it's it, it's the right technology in the right place at the right time for the right application. Yeah. So you know what? Sometimes GSM, sometimes Wi-Fi may well yeah. be the <coughs> absolute make sense go to. And but at least at least be aware that this other technology is yeah there. exactly. And you know what? L at least explore the potential that it opens up for yep. you. And as one of our components friends said the other day, who we really must get on this podcast or something. I, say, I can't believe he's not a friend of the show. I don't know who you are. You know, you can pack as much technology into these devices as you want. You just don't switch it on. You have many fallback technologies. So you yeah. can leverage Sigfox or LoRa as a communication mechanism to sort of phone home. Yeah. But as soon as an event occurs that requires real time, you can use a chunk of battery to turn on 3G or 4G and actually stream the data back for a period of time, shut the systems down again and go back to... So we can get super intelligent, but it's just it's just the, the, the purpose of the trend is, as you said, yeah. there's labs spinning up, there's um, the Things Network, which is essentially a free LoRa network for yep. people who want to develop, people who want to you know, put these solutions in without having to invest huge amounts of money in their own LoRa base stations. You know, WND, is it? WND yeah, have just taken over Sigfox network and are yep. pushing out base stations at a rate of knots at the moment. So, you know, good luck to them. The net net is we're going to be in a place where these protocols, these technologies are going to become prolific. That's going to mean that adoption and, you know, using them to do cool stuff, deploy cool IoT technologies is going to become normal. See, Dave. We do listen to you. Yes, we do, Mr. Murphy. Yes. All right. And on that bombshell, on that's that bombshell? us done. Is that us done? Yes. Hey, look, I tell you what, some of those seemed quite challenging trends for this year, but I have absolute faith that, uh, yeah, one, we'll of them, one of them will come true. <laughs> one of them will come true. <laughs> so well, you'll find it. to be lucky one well, time. Well, podcast listeners, you'll find out in December. Yeah, you will indeed. And yeah. on that bombshell. And on that bombshell, it's time to end. Thank you ever so much for listening. Good As night. always, good night, God bless, and we shall see you soon. We will indeed. Take care. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye now.